Well, good morning. We've spent time worshiping God in fellowship. We spent time worshiping God in um, music. We spent time worshiping God in the reading of His Word. And now to, to look at the, the words of God, to understand the words of God, and to worship Him through those as we hear, um, hopefully, prayerfully, with a contrite heart, with a, a heart of humility, um, to hear the words of truth spoken to us, to challenge us today. Um, this is all worship of God. This is all focused on Him. And so, as we study these words, may, may they cut us to the heart. May they, may they speak truth to us. May we submit underneath God's Word and and be challenged by it, but be encouraged by it at the same time. Uh, this chapter, uh, chapter 8, we really, like with all Scripture, we need to understand how did, what, what happened when we, to get to this point for Israel. In chapters 4 and 5, Israel has treated the Ark of the Covenant as an idol, attempting to manipulate God as a genie, like, I can make him do what I want if I just, you know, make a sacrifice, or I bring him here and say, God, do this, because you did it in the past. Um, they wanted to fill, fulfill their own desires of victory. And the consequences were severe. The ark was lost to their enemies. Thousands of Israelites died in battle. And all of that symbolized that the presence and the glory of God was no longer with his people. It was devastating to the nation. And then we jump to ch- chapter 6. And it jumps ahead seven months. The ark was taken by the Philistines at that battle. Seven months later, the ark is finally returned to Israel, only for 70 men to be killed because of of the people's disobedience to God. And so the ark is put out of sight, and Israel continues to worship idols for the next 20 years. Until, for us, it's one chapter. (laughs) Between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is 20 years And the difficulty experienced under the rule and the reign of the Philistines force Israel to reevaluate their life, to reevaluate things. They see that they've strayed from worshiping the Lord, and and so they then turn back to Him. They have hearts of humility. They, they, They had a heart change and repentance, and they turn away from the idols and worship Him alone. And in response, the Lord goes before them in battle against the Philistines, defeating the enemy so soundly that the Philistines never again enter the territory of Israel. Now fast forward between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Now this is a number of years. It doesn't say how many. But we go from the beginning of 1 Samuel. Samuel's a young man when Eli dies to 20 years later in his 20s, maybe 30s. When the ark is uh, returned and the people turn back to the Lord. And now fast forward, he's now called an old man. I don't know what old is back then. I know the older I get, the older old gets, right? Um, but he's an old man. His sons have been appointed as judges of Israel, but Samuel's sons are corrupt. They take bribes. They chase after their own gain. They pervert justice. The people see what their future holds, and they want something new. 
They don't want Samuel's sons to judge over them. And Samuel, being old, he's not going to be around forever. They trust Samuel. They love Samuel. But eventually, he's going to die. So what is their solution? Well, in verse 5, they say, Now we'll appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And in verse 20, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The request for a king itself is not wrong. It's not sinful. In fact, as we'll see in the coming chapters and these coming weeks, God actually puts a king of his own choosing, David, in place of the choice of the people. So having a king is not wrong. It's not sinful. But the reason for the request is where the problem lies because they are rejecting the Lord as their king and judge and they are seeking a king that they choose for themselves. Now, I had put down my title as the consequences for rejecting God. The more I got into it after I had already sent everything to to Becky for for the bulletin today, you could cross that out because I think the, the point of this is not, yes, there are consequences, severe consequences. We've talked about that. But I think the point of this passage, as I got into it more, is that Israel is a people set apart. This is about the people of Israel being holy. God's people being a people set apart from the world. And so as we think of that, as we hold that in our mind, okay, Israel is set apart. Let's hear the rest of the words of this chapter. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock, flocks, and you will be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said, then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Father, I pray that you would use these words and my words, my fallible words, that they would, that they would not fall even on my own deaf ears, Father, that we would hear your truth and love it. But Father, that we would find joy, that we would find conviction, that we would find you and who we are as your people here in these words father we give this time to you and we ask you use it for your goodness for your greatness and to sanctify us as your people we ask this in your name amen so what was the catalyst which brought out which brought out the desire for the new leadership 
Well, Samuel, he's a godly man, he's a godly judge, but he's also old. Seemingly, in the eyes of the people, he's not going to be around for much longer, which means that someone's going to have to take over for him. And the only ones that are in place behind him are his corrupt sons, who are far from godly, far from hearing and following the voice of the Lord. They've turned aside after gain. They've done their own thing. They've perverted justice. Israel sees their future. And with these two men... They rightfully fear what is to come underneath their leadership. They've experienced bad judges before, and they say, we don't want that. So we have to give them credit for that, right? They're seeing what the future holds. And so they seek a change. Instead of judges, now they want to be a kingdom. They want a king. Now, it's, it's tempting to see Israel's leadership failure and look to the workplace managers, or to the teachers over us, or the politicians of today, anybody who's in an authority in the world. But the context of this chapter, of this whole situation, in fact, this whole book is God's covenant people. This is not a book about the Philistines. This is not a book about the Amorites or the Jebusites or all those other sites that are in Canaan. This is about Israel, God's people. And so if we are to bring this chapter out of the pages of Scripture and we are to bring it into our world today, that we have to look at what this means for God's covenant people today. In other words, we have to apply this to the church. Yes, corporately, the church. Okay, so we could say like the church throughout the world, probably more so for us, it would be the local church, Elm Creek Community Church. But you, if you are a believer, are the church. And so this is also an individual thing that we must go to and apply this to us. So what do, what do we do with the failure of pastors and elders, teachers, other leaders in the church? I, I've had many conversations with, with some of you about past experiences that you've had in churches where a a leader has severe failings? How do we respond to the public failure of corruption or sexual immorality or just ungodly leadership within the church? What is your response when you are, are the one who's personally affected by those leaders? emotionally, physically, spiritually even? How do you deal with the long-term effects of ungodly failed leadership within the local church or the church around the world? You see, again, Israel's desire for new leadership is not sinful, especially when the current leadership is corrupt and it's ungodly. Samuel's sons may have been the catalyst, but they only exposed a deeper problem for Israel, their desire to be like all the other nations around them. They saw the kings of other nations leading their people out for battle, judging and ruling their people. Israel didn't have a leader like that, at least least not one that they could see, not one they could touch, not one they could go to personally, face-to-face, physically. They saw that the what the other nations had 
and their need for new leadership, and they connected the dots. We want to have leaders like that. We want to be like them. Look how strong the Philistines are. Look how strong the Canaanites are. Look how strong Assyria and Babylon or whoever's the big guy at the time. Look at them. They have king. Let's have a king whom we can see. And who goes out physically for us? Who we can see face-to-face and have conversations with? Whom we can witness doing great and awesome deeds in our name for us? My hope is that we can see the irony in this request. Because only a chapter before do we read about how Israel repented, turned their hearts back to the Lord, and God's response was to go out before their army and throw the Philistines in confusion. So that when the Israelite army comes in, it's a cakewalk. They're basically defeated before Israel even gets there. And when Israel gets there, they utterly demolish the army. What set Israel apart from all the other nations was that God had made a covenant with them. They were his people. No other nation could make a claim like that. The Philistines couldn't do it. And they were made God's people so that through them, all the nations would know that he is the Lord. He is the one who brought them out of Egypt. He is the one who brought them into the land of Canaan. He is the one who fights for them. He had set them apart from all other, all other nations, and they were supposed to be different. That was the point of God's choosing them. And now, they're shunning God's purpose for them. What about the church today? What about God's people, you, me, us as Elm Creek? Like Israel, we're called to be different from the world around us. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be different. The temptation to be culturally relevant, to be numbers-oriented, whether that's people or whether that's money, it's, it's huge. We see the quote-unquote success of companies and organizations or perhaps even other churches, and we desire to be like that. Look at what they're doing. Let's be like them. We desire to be like everyone else around us, but is that what the church has called, uh, God has called the church to be? Is that what he desires for us and from us? A bit of wisdom passed on to me by my parents is a realization that leadership fails, that we have a desire to be like everybody else, and so we want to be like them. This bit of wisdom that says, watch what you ask for, you might just get it. This time in Israel's history is a crossroads They have asked the Lord for something that sounds and feels right. But the reality is that when they receive it, it's far from what they expect. Even though they've been warned by Samuel, like in detail, this is what's going to happen. So, in other words, Samuel say, watch what you're asking for, guys. In response to Israel's request, the Lord refers back to the exodus out of Egypt. Did you catch that? From the time that I brought them out of Egypt, this is what they have done to me, and that's what they're doing to you, Samuel. 
you're experiencing what I experience all the time with these people. In Exodus 2, Israel groans about their slavery to the Egyptians. Their cry is heard by God, and he answers them by sending them Moses, a godly leader, imperfect, of course, but godly nonetheless, to lead them out of slavery into freedom to the promised land. Well, in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel lays out for the people the reality of what they're requesting. Yes, this king will go out before them. Yes, he will judge them, but he will also enslave them. He says it clearly. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Israel is asking to once again become slaves just like they were in Egypt. And I think verse 18 is the crux of this. He says, and in that day you will cry out just like you did in Egypt. You're going to cry out uh, to the Lord because of what the king has done, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But what's going to happen? Instead of the Lord hearing your cry and sending a God leader, what he's going to do is he's going to ignore you. He's not going to hear your cry. He will not answer you on that day. God warns them that what they are asking will only lead to a bad place. And in that bad place, the Lord is not going to answer their cries for help. He's going to let them sleep in the bed in which they made for themselves. And we say, what a hateful God. In their misery and in their pain, he's not going to hear them. Well, I'll be honest with you, sometimes the best discipline I ever received is when my parents said, let me know how that works out for you. <laughs> and they don't intervene for me. And they let me suffer. And they let me have pain because of my mistakes so that I might learn from, about, from them. Well, what about the church today? Our desire to be like the world around us does not lead to, quote-unquote, the success that we expect. Instead, it leads, leads to our enslavement. Decisions are made and ministries are created to increase numbers, to increase money, to be more alike so that we can... I've even heard it from a pastor, I want to be the largest church in the area. Like, really? That's your sole purpose as a church? We become enslaved to these desires. Choices are made to please people not the Lord, or perhaps even doctrine and intellect rule, making the mind and understanding king. Or take it to the other extreme, emotions and the heart rule. Only those who get goosebumps or a feeling of pleasant emotions are the most spiritually in tune with God. I've heard all of it from people. In fact, I may have even thought it at times, as I'm sure you have too. Is the church enslaved to these earthly desires in the name of the worship of the Lord? What's the answer to all this? You've heard these three things, right? There's tension there. We could deny that as a church that, well, you know, we just want to worship God and all these other... Pfft. I could tell you as a pastor... 
and the conversations that I've had with people, we're no different in the world as far as our earthly desires go. And the temptation to go our own way or do what we think is best is so great, which is why so many pastors fall prey to the God of themselves or people in the church falling prey to the God of themselves and their desires and their wants or the God of success, which I have never heard anybody within the church to actually give me a good biblical account of what success is except for expanding the kingdom, which how do you measure that? Do I know the souls of men? Do I know who has come to Christ? I don't. God does. Maybe success is just faithfulness. Faithfulness to the obedience of God. But then you're in danger of becoming an intellect. It's all about doctrine. Well, okay, then we, we need to have more emotion. Well, then you become slaves to emotion. You see the temptation? We are no different than Israel as God's people today. There's tension there. There has to be tension there. We realize that our, our tendency to become slaves to earthly desires, but our hearts belong to God. There's this battle between the flesh and the spirit that is raging within us. Where do we turn as God's people when we realize that what we have asked for, new leadership, new focus, a new purpose, what, I mean, whatever. Well, we, the, what we've been seeking, that even now we want to respond to unfaithful and corrupt leadership, and our reaction to it does not lead to our freedom, but to our enslavement. Now, don't hear me wrong. Especially when it comes to leadership, like, well, then we just let leadership. No, remove leadership. But there is a godly process and a godly reason for removing leaders. How do we resolve this tension with our own, within our own hearts? Are you, are you feeling you feeling that? Each one of us, we want this. This is how I, this is who God has made me. And yet, when we look at our churches and our leadership, we realize, man, we have the tendency to become Samuel's sons. We pervert justice. We seek after our own gain. What's the answer? What's the answer? Where do we go to when we see things falling apart? I turned to Katie right at the beginning of the service because, Aaron, I love you, but you totally gave away the answer, man. Right at the beginning. Where do we turn? So here's the question. I'm going to ask it. You can answer. I was told I have to give a very clear understanding that now I want you to answer this question. Where do we turn? Oh, where do we turn? God. We turn to Christ. He's the answer. And you go, well, it's a Sunday school answer. Well, I'm sorry, that's the one that the Bible gives. That's the one that the Bible gives. 
Where do we turn as God's people when we realize that everything that we've asked for, our own earthly desires, everything that we've sought, whether it's in leadership or our own hearts, that doesn't lead to freedom, it leads to enslavement. Where do we turn? We turn to the perfect leader, to the perfect king, and to the one who makes us holy. He makes us set apart. Christ is our perfect leader. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 9-6. This is a famous passage. We probably all know it if you've been to any Christmas service. For, or you've sung in a choir. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's the ruler. He's the reigner. He's the leader. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or use Jesus' words in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is the perfect leader? Christ is the perfect leader. He came to serve and to die for his people. He is the perfect counselor who gives perfect guidance to his people. He is the mighty God who rules and reigns over all creation. He is the leader whose good rule never ends. He is never corrupt. He is always just, and he will do what is right, even if it means disciplining his own people whom he loves so much he died for them. He's the leader who brings peace when no peace is in sight. Human leadership is fallible. I mean, how many times have I said that? And probably you're like, yep, amen, right? Mark, you're fallible. Absolutely. I'll be the first one in line to condemn myself in that. Human leadership is prone to sin. Human leadership is prone to lead astray. But the reality is, is we're all in that place. Whether you're in a leadership position in the church or not, we are all fallible, we are all sinful, and we are all prone to be led astray to follow our own earthly desires. But failed leadership does not mean that we worship a failed leader. If you are here because I'm such an eloquent speaker, first of all, I need to, you know, check your character, first of all, because I know, I know who I am. But secondly, if we attend a church or you're a visitor or you're even listening to this online and you've got your own church and you have placed the leadership of your church on so high a pedestal, the only place they have to go down, guess what? They're going to go down because they're human like you and me. They're not perfect. They're held to a higher standard, absolutely. But we do not worship a pastor. We do not worship a worship team. We do not worship one another. We worship our perfect leader, Christ, who realizes all of, all of the issues that we have. He realizes what we're prone to. And he says, put your hope in me. Our hope as God's people is found in him alone, in Jesus Christ why? Because he never fails in his leadership of his people. Never. Even when it seems like he does, he doesn't. Christ is our perfect leader. He's also our perfect king. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary to explain, you're going to have a baby, and she says, what? Who is this? He describes this baby, he says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God 
will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Christ is our king. He's our perfect king. The world is not our king. My heart is not my king. My earthly desires, as God's people, are not my king. He alone is sitting on the throne of David. No one else. We've talked about this before that we've got to check our hearts. Who's sitting on the throne of our hearts? Who's sitting on the throne? Who reigns and rules over us? Is it me? Is it my preferences? Is it my desires? Is it the things of this world? Or is it Christ? He is king. He makes righteous judgments, but he is also a king who's humble. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul says this to the church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, so now he's going to go on and explain who Christ is. Listen carefully to this. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that doesn't mean like, like, I'm God? What does that mean? It's not a mental grasp. It's a physical grasp, if you wanted to use an illustration. Though he was in the form of God, though he was God, he did not count equality with God something to hold on to. In other words, he had every right to continue to reign and rule on the throne in heaven, and instead he let that go. And he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a human being, being born in the likeness of men. He became like you and me in every single way but sin. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't come, he didn't come in a palace. He wasn't born a king, as we think of a king. He was born a carpenter. He was born with animals. What prince is born with animals? He humbled himself by obedience to the desire of God to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, what has he done? The Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Here's your kingly language. So that at the name of Jesus, at his authority, every knee should bow. I've said this a number of times. At the end of time when Christ comes again, who's going to bow down to Jesus? Everyone. Everyone. Now, that doesn't mean they're happy about it, but they have no choice because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and they have to show him reverence, and they hate every moment of it. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ humbled himself, being born in the likeness of you and of me, so that through his death upon the cross, he would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified, and that, and this is, so did you catch that? He's glorified, his Father is glorified, and then thirdly, what happens? We're saved. Don't mess that up. He didn't come to save you only. First and foremost, he came. He came to give his father glory and to give him 
glory and save us. Our hope is found in our King, our perfect King, Jesus Christ. So He is our perfect leader. He is our perfect King. And then finally, Christ makes us holy. He makes us set apart. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you, he's talking to the church, Peter is, this is Peter, the apostle Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is all Exodus. Did you catch this? This is all Exodus language. Who called Israel out of Egypt? God called him, called her, I guess, out of Egypt, called that nation out of Egypt. Who has called the church out of darkness? Christ has. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like Israel, we as the church are God's chosen people. Not because of our awesomeness. Not not because of how powerful we are and how influential we are in the culture. We are not chosen by God because of us. We are chosen by God because of His Son. We are a precious possession of God to do His will and to do His desire. We are a royal nation of people brought from spiritual poverty and death and sin to become the royal status of brothers and sisters, princes and princesses with Christ our Savior. I mean, like dwell on that. Think about that. Christ has made you his child. And if he's the perfect king, that makes us royalty. Why why would we deserve that? Well, we don't. (laughs) We don't. We don't deserve it. But he gave it to us because he loves us. We are a people called out of darkness, of sin and death, and were brought, bought by His Son into the power of His marvelous light, His marvelous glory. We have seen and we have felt and we have experienced the glory of God as God's people in His saving us. So what's the answer? What's the answer? to this tension. We see what's going on in the world. We're seeing the corruption even within churches. What's the answer? Christ. When all else fails, where do you turn? You turn to Christ. When you're seeking wisdom, the Bible says, what, what do you, how do you become wise? Well, first you fear the Lord. And then the New Testament says, ask. <laughs> ask for wisdom. So that Whatever the situation, that we don't make decisions based off of what we want and what we think is right and what our intellect or our emotions say is right, but instead we make decisions based off of what does God tell us and how do we apply that to the situation and how do we remain humble 
and yet firm for godliness and, and truth. It's remembering. It's remembering that as God's people, we have seen and felt and experienced the glory of God in His saving us. And so all that we are should point to Him. Have we sought after earthly desires? Do we find ourselves as a slave to the things of this world? The reality is to remind ourselves and to remember that those things would strongly entice us. I, I don't care if it's earthly, if it's worldly, if it's anything against what God's Word says, and I know you know this to be true because if you've ever dealt with sin in your life, small or big, the reality is, is there's this enticement and there's this joy right at the beginning and then it becomes sand in your mouth and you despise, you despise your decision. I've been there. I'm there regularly. Our hope as God's people is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We turn to Him. We remember, I am not who I am in my mind. I am who I am because Christ is making me like Him. He has saved me. He has called me out. He has made me holy, even in those moments when I'm not holy. That's where the hope lies. That's where our firm hope is found is not in us, not in me, not in the worship, not in tacos, none, none of that. In the end, the only thing that matters is the church is, are we putting our hope in Christ? So if you, if you have not given your life to Christ, if you are seeking these earthly the desires, if you're finding yourself that you are not a, you're a slave to this world and it, you do as it bids and it, it bothers you and you hate it and you want more, you want better. The reality is, this is what God's word says in Ephesians chapter two. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means he's your king. It means that you say, I want to follow what you desire for me, Father. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he has the power to rule over all creation and all things, including death itself, because if he can raise his son to death, from death to life physically, he can bring me from spiritual death to spiritual life. If you confess, if you believe, you will be saved. You will be made royal. You will be made holy. Your sin does not define you. Ungodly leadership, leadership in general, does not define you. As a child of God, Christ defines you. So when we hear that as God's people, if we've believed, if we've confessed, if we're striving and we see this brokenness and we sit back and we go, what do we do? What do we do? I'm seeing, I'm feeling this tension. How in the world... What do I do? Okay, I gotta go back to Christ. I gotta go back to Christ. When we read the word of, word of God, we see this everywhere and we rejoice. Not in our greatness, but in his greatness. So here the Psalm, Psalm 100, speaking to God's covenant people. 
Today, that would be us as the church. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with thanksgiving, with singing, knowing that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. He created us. He set us apart. And we are his. We are his people. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He is our shepherd who cares for us and guides us. He is the great leader. He is the great king. And so verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And I'll add a little understanding at the end for those who are his people. Put your hope in Christ. Find joy. Find mercy. Find love. You know what steadfast love is? It means he's going to love you no matter what. Steadfast doesn't mean like, well, for a while and then I'm going to quit. No, he loves his people forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that you use these words as always to just grab a hold of us. Remind us who we are as your people. Help us to see the failings around us, to see the failings even in our own heart, Father, to acknowledge them, to, to fight, God, for, for righteousness and goodness for what you desire. But Father, I pray that we would not stray from you, that we would not go to our earthly desires, we would not go to the ways of this world, that we would not desire to be like all the other churches and all the other companies and all the other institutions of this world thinking that they have the answer. Father, you have the answer. And what is the answer? It is your son. So as we deal with these things within us, Father, our own sin or the failings of, of, of our church, the failings of leaders. Not just in our church, but throughout the churches, through the church throughout the whole world, when we see that and it breaks our heart, Father, help us to lean into you and to seek your understanding and your wisdom. We do not want to be like the world around us, Father. So help us to fight that, to fight it with all our heart for your glory. And remind us, God, you, your son is the perfect leader. Your son is the perfect king. And you have made us holy through his sacrifice upon the cross. Glory to your name. That is where our joy is found. That is where our hope is found. It is in him. It is him. Why would you save such a wretch like me, such a sinner like me? I have no idea, but I praise you every day, Father what you have done. May that be true for all of us, God. We ask this in your name. Amen. As you stand, we'll sing our final song.